0: Our scripture reading is from James chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death this is the word of the lord thanks be to god Good morning the privilege to be here today worshiping our lord and savior We're looking at a uh, small, am I on? Can you hear me? Okay. We're looking at a small section here in James that deals with the, the nature of temptation. So right off the bat, we're talking about, when we're talking about trials and temptations, we're talking about something that cuts through the lives of every person. There's no one who lives a life free of trying times. There's no one who can say that they live a life free from temptations. So what our passage addresses today is the need to endure trials as well as the temptations which will arise. And James addresses our tendency to shift blame for our temptations in the midst of a trial. James is concerned about a fundamental misunderstanding about the origins of our temptations and the natures of trials. And he speaks about this in regard to the character of God and the nature of man. He admonishes us to not be deceived. This way, when we are suffering, or when we're in temptation, we face our trials with the resources to endure, knowing God's grace and his presence and his purpose in the midst of it all. Before we begin, I just want to open with a brief word of prayer. Father God, may you speak to us through the reading and the preaching of your word, and may the name of Christ ever be praised. Amen. So, today I just want to look at two points when we look at these three verses from James. I want to look at a promise and a warning. A promise and a warning. First, the promise. James says, Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Why is a person who perseveres under trials blessed? There is something that happens for our benefit. Something that blesses those who endure. In verse 2, we are to count it a joy when we encounter trials. Because trials produce steadfastness. James says in verse four, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When James says, count it a joy, he's using a word that means, of course, to consider or or to think. Think about it this way. Stop and understand what's happening behind the trial, even though you don't understand the trial itself. There's a process in trials in which God works to produce a certain effect in us. This is similar to Paul, who will say in Romans 5, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. Why do we find joy in suffering, or, or better, how, how do we find joy in suffering? How do we do this? Are we to include, conclude that Paul and James are a couple of, of sadists who enjoy trials and sufferings themselves? No. They are rejoicing, and they are not rejoicing in suffering per se. They are rejoicing in how the Lord uses suffering, and how he uses trials. And this is what I refer to as the promise. One aspect of this promise that James refers to, he says in verse 3, trials, he refers to them as the testing of your faith. And again in verse 12, our passage today, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test. Just as we test precious metals in fire to test the the genuineness and the the purity of the metal to, to burn off the dross or the impurities, trials act to refine our faith. They refine us. They strengthen our faith. They purify us. God tested Abraham to sacrifice his son in Genesis 22. God, he tested his people in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8, the Lord says that he tested his people, quote, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. And he says, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. When tested, it humbles us. It produces steadfastness. It, it perfects and completes us and our faith. And the Lord reassures us in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There is a process of maturation that the Holy Spirit works to conform our hearts to the character of Christ. In which we, we die to sin and we live for righteousness over the course of our lives. Our shorter catechism speaks of this process as a work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and to live unto righteousness. It's God's work. It's a work of free grace. Yet it's described as us being enabled to live more faithfully. It's God's work and we have work and responsibility in this process of maturation, of sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus. And James says during trials to ask God for wisdom. You see, he offers us wisdom for this testing, to see us grow through it. Our hearts are refined through this process. You see, trials are not the dessert of pleasure, but they are the buffet of grace. James says to count it a joy. He says that we are blessed. But he's not saying to pretend that trials are fun. He's not telling us to deny the reality of the pain. I was talking to an older, wiser friend one time, and I, I said, you know, I think that as God is, is working in us to refine us, to, to make us holy, that it doesn't always feel good. And she responded to me. She almost got incredulous with me. She said, it doesn't always She said the process of sanctification is mostly painful. What joy, or what pleasure, I should say rather, what pleasure is it to die to yourself? What feels good about sharing in sufferings with Christ? What feels good about being in the valley or the furnace? Yet some of the most faithful were formed by hardship. Another aspect of this promise is that it results in receiving, verse 12, the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. In ancient times, the idea of the crown would of course bring to mind royalty, but also a bestowal of honor or a reward like a, like a victor's crown. We are blessed not because we suffer, but because in suffering there's a validation of a great honor we have been bestowed. John Calvin, reflecting on this, wrote that the crown, it's, quote, promised to those who love God. By speaking thus, he means not that the love of man is the cause of obtaining the crown, but that the elect who love him are alone approved by God. The crown is promised to those who love God. And we love God because he first loved us. Scripture also tells us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger or the sword? No. In all these, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers... Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We love God because in Christ he first loved us. This crown, he's not merely, merely rewarding us for hanging on through tough times. No, he's with us in the furnace. He doesn't call us to suffer and then leave us alone to try to to hold on. But He gives us the resource we need to hold on His loving presence. He's with us in the valley, never to to leave nor forsake us. He's in the very trial for it's designed specifically for us. For those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Scripture doesn't say some things, or only good things, comfortable things, but all things, even painful things. By enduring trials, our our faith and love for Christ is refined, shown to be genuine, giving a deeper assurance of God's love. He blesses us and rewards us with the crown of life. I've, I've seen people suffer terribly. I've seen the, the death of spouses, of infants, relational strain, gross violations of trust, financial woes, job distress, people suffering under depression and heavy anxiety. I, I, I've seen and I've, I've even experienced myself the, the existential weight of these trials and then the temptation to, to doubt the Lord in these moments. And it's here where we feel that temptation. Where every ounce of your being feels as if God doesn't love you. Or you're not a child of God. Or you doubt his goodness towards you. And in these times, all we may have if our, is our profession of faith. Our knowledge of the truth. To which we cling, even if our emotions betray us and tell us it's not true. Sometimes the best best thing that we can do for someone in this situation is to simply be there for them, like Jesus is there for them. To pray for them, with them, to remind them of these truths. To remind them of God's character and his promises, to remind them the God to whom they belong, and maybe, maybe you're being tested right now. Maybe, perhaps there's a relationship that's not right, or evil being perpetrated against you, or your mourning loss, or you're in some sort of frustrating circumstance. James admonishes us to consider, to think. And in verse 16, not to be deceived. Know the truth of our trials. How we must consider it and endure. Because if we think wrongly, we are in danger. Leading us to our second point, a warning. James wants us to think rightly about our trials and our temptations. Or else we're in danger. What are the dangers? One... We can wrongly blame God, and two, in blaming God, we squander these blessed trials that are designed to produce something in us. We are naturally good lawyers in our inner thoughts, right? Where we adeptly we defend ourselves and shift blame. I'm uh, currently a, a teacher. I teach logic, theology, Bible, and literature. And any time a student walks into my classroom, I can tell them, put away your books, get out a pencil, here's a pop quiz. And as the person with authority in the classroom, I have the right to test my students in order to help them. One time I had actually given a pop quiz on a particular class on their reading assignment. Uh, as many of them had become negligent in their duties, And of course, the result was that most of them failed the quiz, except for the few students who were actually doing the reading. Now, am I responsible for the test? Yes. I have the right and the responsibility to keep my students straight. Am I responsible for my students failing the test? No. See, when I had done this, the students actually protested, shifting blame from their own negligence, and to me, the failure of the testing should have led them to make the proper changes to endure the course. Instead, the students protested. They protested their grades. They protested me giving them a, a quiz without warning them. But only later, they came to me one by one and confessed they didn't do the reading, and they deserved the grade that they had earned. My point is this. There's a difference between the one giving the test and the ones responding to the test. There's a difference between the trial and the temptation. How do you grow if you're not learning from your temptations? If you're not learning from your sinful responses to trials? How do you discover the areas in which you must repent until you recognize your particular temptations? And James is imparting two important principles about our responses to trials. One, don't blame God. Two, look to your own heart for the source. And James does this by teaching us the character of God and the nature of man. First, the character of God. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James is anticipating an objection here to shift blame for our temptations, right? If God, he's, he's all-powerful, right? And then we may infer from that that he's the reason I'm being tempted and sinning. After all, he's responsible for my trial. However, James insists, the scriptures insist, that God is in no way culpable or evil. He says in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. John 1.5 says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Well, why would a good God use trials? Why allow us to suffer evil? I don't have a comprehensive answer for that. But I think of Joni Erikson-Tana, who said something like, God uses the things he hates to accomplish the things he loves. God uses the things he hates to accomplish the things he loves. I have a good reason for giving pop quizzes. Now, my students may not think so, but I do. And I don't understand God's wise plan, but his ways thank God, are higher than my ways. He brings these trials into our lives for a blessed purpose. Because he's, he's so pure and good, he seeks to grow us more like Jesus. He invites us to seek wisdom in his word and through prayer. And only God can truly make the bitter sweet. He can transform our most pressing suffering, the most horrendous attempts of evil by man, And produce something so profound and godly. Driving us deeper into Christ. And we've seen this example in the life of Christ. His enemies falsely accused him and they executed him. It was evil. However, this evil could not foil God's purpose. Only further it. And the cross then becomes our salvation. God flips the script. God can take the most seemingly senseless evil, right, and still bring purpose out of it. And this means for us that no matter how painful our circumstance may be, there's hope. There's divine purpose. Nothing is random. God is working unceasingly for our good because he is the source of all goodness. And the challenge for us is to place Our trust in the Lord, no matter how difficult the circumstance may be. Because time after time, God has shown himself faithful in them. To shift blame on him, it it hinders us from seeing the areas where we must grow. It hinders us from examining ourselves and our sinful responses because I'm, I'm blaming God for them. And James tells us about the nature of God. He's pure, he's untempted by evil, and he tempts no one. Trust him. Second, James tells us about the nature of man. Temptations does not come from God. Temptations, they do not come from God. Testing through trials comes from God. Pop quizzes come from the teacher, right? But the responsibility for how they perform on the quiz lies solely with the students. While trials are not temptations, trials are accompanied by temptations. Where do temptations arise from? From us. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is Lord and enticed by his own desire. The test is the trial. The temptation is my heart's response to the trial. You may be suffering unjustly, You may be sinned against, but we are responsible for our response. And I think it was Paul Tripp who said, sinners often respond sinfully to being sinned against, right? We as sinners respond sinfully to being sinned against. The problem then isn't just out there. It's not namely out there. In my circumstance or with another person, but the problem is right in here. And it's not to deny the influence of our circumstance and our trials, they do influence us. But ultimately, I am culpable for my sin, and I must see the danger of my heart in the midst of any trial. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The word here for desire is epithumia. And in the New Testament, it often carries a, a negative meaning. It's often translated as lust or evil desire, but it literally means an intense desire, an excessive craving. The Westminster Catechism defines sin as a failure to conform to or a transgression of God's law. We break God's law because we're compelled by our deep desires. We often don't do the thing we want to do, right? And we we end up doing the thing that we don't want to do. Our struggle with sin, it's just it's messy. You see, the, the way sin works is it's not necessarily we want bad things, but that we want things too badly. Desires aren't intrinsically evil. Desires become evil When they're disordered. And when they're disordered, our desires, the epithumia, affects our will. And then all of a sudden, our resolve to live by God's law is weakened. Often we don't want to give in to the temptation, but we fail and resist our own desires. I've spoken with with men who they know pornography is evil. And they don't want to consume it but they cannot resist their passions and are overwhelmed then with guilt. I've spoken to women who struggle with how they, they treat or speak to their children, resolving to change, but then in the heat of a trial, they lash out, only to become more distraught with their deteriorating relationship. Why do we continually fall prey to our passions? James warns us that we are dragged away or lured or in, and enticed by these desires. This is the language of a hunt. The word translated enticed carries a sense of being baited. By the, while the word Lord carries the sense of being dragged away. And this adds to our understanding of our sin struggle and our desires, right? We are simultaneously the, the perpetrator and the victim of our desires. And the struggle, it's in each one of us. Paul says it says, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Romans 7. We are culpable for our words, our thoughts, our deeds, and yet the Bible describes us as being slaves to sin. We are entrapped to our passions. We are fooled by our hearts, baited and dragged into its follies. Ecclesiastes says, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. See, this captures how dangerous our desires can be. The deception of our hearts. We need God's presence and his word. We need the correction or the counsel of other believers. I I, I need my wife. I I need friends. I need small groups. I need my pastor, my elders. This is why we mustn't deceive ourselves. And be deceived in our trials. That trials come not ultimately to harm, but for our good. God is good during trials. They're not designed to trick us or make us fail. That's what our own vision, bogged by our excessive desires, do. Yet, our provoked responses to trials help us identify where our excessive cravings or intense desires are located. Have you ever... Have you ever been in a situation where you said or did something that, that shocked even you? It reveals something. It reveals something in your heart that you may not have known was there. Or you're being tempted in a way you didn't even realize would be a struggle for you. You see, God brings these trials to help us excavate our sin. to, to shine light on our sin and our excessive desires. Temptation is our heart's response to the trial that God has graciously sent our way to better us. Trials are my circumstance. Temptations are the battlefield in the inner man. He ends here by saying, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. Sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. James uses a, a birthing metaphor image here when our excessive desire is conceived when we cultivate our unrestrained desires by indulging them ignoring repentance turning to god to ask for forgiveness we are on the road to death when sin is born by our habitual self indulgences it's like a snowball being rolled through the snow and it compounds and grows, and sin begets sin. And this passage is a darker mirror image of verse 4. Right? Enduring trials brings forth life abundant, perfecting and growing of our character, but surrendering in trials to our temptation brings forth the degradation of our character, inflaming our poisonous passions, unleashing death. And if you're hearing this and you think, well, this sounds pretty bleak. You're, you're not all that wrong. At least if you're thinking you can go at this alone. A few areas of, of thought in closing here. One, this is why we cannot save ourselves. We are utterly, utterly lost in our sins, and we need the saving work of Jesus Christ. And, you know, we need his forgiveness that is offered to us through this work on the cross. And we also need the power that he gives us through the Holy Spirit, working in conjunction with his word to live a new life, to be set free from our passions, to live for something eternal, not temporal. This is a life not in slavery, but freed to his service, true freedom. To righteousness. Second, we absolutely need the ministry of the church that Christ has graciously given us. I need a pastor, I need church members' counsel, I need the preaching of God's word and sacraments. And when in trials, in suffering, things quickly become a fog. And in that fog, God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And I I need that light coming in from from every angle. From from my wife, from my pastor, from my elders, from my small group, from my co-workers, from my mentor. Any way I can get clarity in the heat of a trial from God's word, I need it. Because we are given to self-deception. Third, And final, when talking about desires, ultimately, we're talking about worship. Where are my affections? I need to have my passions recalibrated, right? To be driven deeper into the arms of Christ, to, to be desperate for him in a sense. He needs to be the greatest beauty and good that I can see in my life. And only when he becomes more beautiful to me then the temporal passions of this life, do they begin to take their proper place. The love I I crave for my wife doesn't disappear, but it finds its proper place. The need for approval from, from my supervisor, it doesn't rule me, but it can properly inform how I work. You see, Jesus has to have that primary place in my heart. The, the, the deepest place, the place of most weight, the most glory. And fortunately, when you know Jesus as Savior, he's, he's a tough person not to like. He's a great high priest who sympathizes with us in every way. Dorothy Sayers wrote, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, that Jesus Christ, for whatever reason, he's allowed trials and suffering in this life. He isn't up there saying, okay, figure it out. He was willing to come down and be thrown into the greatest trials that, that ever was. Willing to take his own medicine, as Dorothy Sayers words it. She says that he can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. Right? He was born in poverty, he suffered infinite pain, and he did this all for us. And he thought it was well worth his while. Wow. Consider this day the Savior before you. Then consider your trials. Count it a joy. Because we are blessed. Let's pray.